starting a brand new series today, and uh, it's called The Art of Reframing. And the whole point of this is to develop a biblical mindset for common issues. And there's a reason why this is important to us. You know, I believe that like you, a lot of people have developed a belief or a viewpoint about some issues in life that may not be accurate. They may actually be wrong. And so what we want to do through this series is discover what God's word, which gives us God's perspective, gives us a frame through which we can look at issues like forgiveness, contentment, sex, emotions, identity, time, suffering, which is like a number one thing we see, you know, why does God allow? And I know that suffering is a really big challenge to the Christian faith, but you know what? God has a perspective on pain and suffering that we need to look at in Scripture. And so we're going to do that over the next several weeks. We're going to look at some of the, what I'll call the, the main issues that I generally hear people have questions about when they want to talk to a pastor about something. Often it involves these particular areas that we're going to address and help establish a, a, a biblical view on this. Because the truth is that all of you have developed a way that you view things like forgiveness, sexuality, time, money. All of us have established views on that. And even if you don't know how to articulate that view today, like if I was to put a microphone in front of your face and say, what do you believe about forgiveness? You may not be able to recall it right now, but it is deeply rooted in you. So how did it get there? How do the, the viewpoints we already have, how'd they get there? And so a couple ways that happens. One, that has happened because of the family in which you grew up. Your parents, your family of origin has influenced what you have come to believe about issues like forgiveness. And chances are, it's not always been right. Uh, maybe it hasn't been the correct way to view it, but you've learned. You know, how many know that at home, things are caught and taught? And uh, they're both applied, caught and taught. And sometimes you recognize that maybe that wasn't the best way to learn things. But you learned those in home. You also learned those by peer influence. Remember, as you grew up with your friends and you started talking about things like that, and together you reasoned with what might be the best way to look at those, and so your peers have influenced how you have come to believe and view some of these common issues. Also, culture has certainly influenced it. I mean, you can't help but turn on TV or some form of media going online without recognizing culture is trying to influence you on a regular basis, and it will influence how you view things. It will call to question, maybe, some things that you have believed because culture is often in the opposite or opposing side of what God's word would say. And so it's been influencing you. And then also your religious influence has happened. You maybe grew up in church or you're here at church today and you kind of hear things and you kind of piece that together with what your family talked about and what your friends had talked about. And you kind of come up with this kind of conglomeration of how you've come to establish your, your views. And so the church may have been a part of helping establish how you've come to approach. But how many know that even if you went to a church, the way they taught about forgiveness might have been very different than what the Bible actually says? Because sometimes a church culture can actually be uh, a distortion of the truth of God's word if it's toxic. And some of you may have been in a toxic religious environment, or maybe you were in an offshoot of main Christianity where it was kind of Christianish 
but not entirely, and you used me another book to bring clarity to God's word. Friends, anytime someone says you need a second book or a second manual to complete the word of God, that should be a humongous red flag that this is a problem because God's word stands on its own. Right? But your religious community helped establish that. And then finally, just your own personal experience. The way that you've processed life, things that have happened to you, and then how you've coped with those, developed a viewpoint or a belief. And how many know sometimes our coping mechanisms have not been very effective or helpful? And maybe it has actually distorted what would be true but we have to make sense of it. We have to have a way to process it. So the whole point of this series is recognizing that all of these things, your family of origin, your religious upbringing, your peer influence, culture, all of those have kind of come together and created for you a way at which you view these things. So we'll call those a frame, all right? We'll call it a frame. So this is what I'm holding in my hand. This is a nice picture frame. I got this from my wife. There's no picture in it. This is the way Trisha prefers to decorate. It's just a frame. Um, we're going to talk about what happens when we take all of those things and we form a window through which we look at or a frame through which we look at all of these things. My goal in this series is even though you've had all of these ways of learning and building your belief system, whatever that might be, I'm not here to, to say you're bad or, or you're wrong. What I want to do is all of us myself included, have developed a belief system. And I want to lay my belief system about forgiveness and all the issues we're going to talk about, I want to lay it alongside what the Bible says. And I want to begin to compare. And the reason the compare and contrasting is important is because there'll be some times when you open up God's word and it will confirm what you've already believed. And those are wonderful moments when, when you look at God's word and it's like, well, I was right after all. And it kind of confirmed what I, my parents taught me or what my church said. It may confirm. It may also confront errors. Because the word of God is living and active. It has a way of piercing or dividing. So there may be something that you come to recognize as you lay God's perspective along your own that maybe there were errors in the way you came to believe about certain things. And when that happens, then something else has got to happen. And that's where the Holy Spirit then is going to challenge you to modify what you have believed, to bring it into alignment with God's truth. And then, because of that, you will begin to develop what I would call a biblical mindset or a biblical worldview about these issues. And then you'll also have the skills to apply the same principle to any other issues we may not cover. All right? Because anytime, here's the, here's the thing. The Bible has a lot to say about stuff. Uh, we're going to hit a few of them, but if we can learn where to go and how to read to learn those, it'll be important for us. So that's what the, armor, the art of reframing is all about. So what is a frame? Let's, let's start with talking about what this means. A frame, as defined in the dictionary, is this. A frame is it to, to form or to make as by fitting and uniting parts together. So this frame was united together, obviously using wood. It was pieced together, and it was meant to create a boundary through which we believe something, or it wraps around what we believe. Some people refer to this maybe as a window frame as well. It's a lens through which you look. If you're ever a photographer, you know that when you look through a camera, there is a frame inside there. It's a way through which you look, and you notice you can zoom in or zoom out, and it changes the perspective 
of what you're taking a picture of, but that frame is there nonetheless. So it's the idea of forming or to make or to create kind of a construct, and what we've done is taken all of those influences and we have put together a frame through which we look at these issues in life. Um, Reframing then, this is not rocket science, but reframing is to frame again. You know, that's the wonderful thing about the English language. Re usually means to do it again, right? So to form again or to frame again, often though, in a different way. Reframing is often used uh, in cognitive therapy. Some of you might have gone to a therapist and the therapist said, well, let's look at this a different way. And they try to help you see your pain or hurt or whatever through another lens of perspective. And their goal is to try to help you maybe think differently about it. This is not a cognitive therapy today, all right? But we are going to to see what God's word says about some of these truths that maybe will help us see forgiveness, things like time, sex, differently. More in line with what God would have us see it. So to reframe is to see it differently. And that's the basic idea behind this. All of us have had a way that we have operated, that we have defined, that we have believed. So when things happen, we process it through our belief system. And maybe that's been good. Maybe it's not worked for you. And people have walked away from the Christian faith because their frame was never right to begin with. They looked at their life situations through the frame they were given. It's like, this this doesn't compute. So out goes biblical truth. No, that's not what we're going to do. What we're going to do is we're going to look at the Word of God, lie them in together, our belief in God's Word, and begin to contrast, maybe compare, and then bring into alignment our view in, in, according to God's Word. Why? Because as Christians, that is the only thing we have with which to build our faith and our belief, is God's Word. Culture changes. How many noticed that? I've heard bell-bottoms are coming back. <laughs> Praise God, right? Bell-bottoms are coming back. Some of you are like, finally. I've had my pants in the attic for like 40 years, and I can break them out again. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Culture changes, right? It like changes on a weekly basis. It's moved so rapidly lately, hasn't it? Culture has shifted so so remarkably quick. How do you base anything on culture that is so changing? Here's the thing. God's word, he says it's the same yesterday, today, and forever. God's word hasn't changed. Through the lens of all of cultural changes, God's word has been constant. That's why the culture can't really stand God's word. Because it has been constant. It has been unchanging. So that's where I'm going to hinge my belief system, friends. Not on a culture that will change by tomorrow. And here's what Paul has to say about that. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. This is the other 3.16 you should know, all right? 2 Timothy 3.16 says this. All scripture is God-breathed. In other words, it is inspired by God. That word breathed is the idea of when you exhale, inhale, when you expire, not die, but when you breathe out, okay? God breathed out, and it breathed into the hearts of men and women, but men as they wrote, right? So all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for some reasons, teaching, rebuking. I have felt the rebuke of God's Word before. For correcting, I have felt that as well. Correcting is where my belief didn't line up with God's word, and he began to bring me to school about that, right? And training in righteousness. He says elsewhere in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, he's actually praying for the church at Thessalonica, and he prays this, and we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, so they're saying we were messengers, but it was God's word, you accepted it not as a human word, 
but as it actually is, the Word of God. What's that mean? When Paul and the other apostles traveled and preached, yes, they may have used Old Testament, the uttered Word of God in the Old Testament, but as they were speaking as apostles, speaking forth the Word of God, they were speaking the Word of God. It was coming from men's lips, but it became what we've recorded in Scripture, Paul's letters being some of those, Peter, they were all contributors to what would become God's Word. And here's the cool thing about it. It goes on to say, which is indeed at work in you who believe. God's Word wants to work in you. But where's it going to work in you at? In those areas of your belief, in the areas of how you try to interpret and make sense of what is happening in your life and around your life. So while most of us would agree that, yes, as Christians, God's Word should be kind of where I go to build my, my understanding and my belief, here's truth, okay? The truth is Barna Research Group did a study, and their study was primarily of the Christian population. And their point was to discover how many professed Christians actually have a biblical worldview. In other words, they look at Scripture and they let Scripture determine how they will behave, how they will believe, and how they'll make decisions. The results of their survey showed that less in one out of 10, less than one out of 10 Christians actually have a biblical worldview. In other words, less than one out of 10 go to God's word for direction in life, in their belief, and their decision-making. Friends, this ought not be. And this is why we have such a mess in the church in our world today. Because we have illiterate Christians trying to live a God-honoring life without the governing word of God showing them how to do that or submitting to what God's word says and aligning their life and their belief accordingly. So we've, we've got a problem here. My hope is that at Neighborhood Church that we're gonna see that num those numbers shift, okay? That we have a 10 out of 10 of our people who say, I want to have a biblical worldview at how I make decisions at what I come to believe about certain issues in life. So we're gonna turn the tide. And I love what, what C.S. Lewis wrote. This is why I think this study is so important. C.S. Lewis was a man who was incredibly intelligent, right? An atheist turned Christian by a great friend of his, J.R. Tolkien. Many of you have read his books as well as C.S. Lewis' books. Look at what C.S. Lewis says. I believe in Christianity. So he's talking about this worldview. Okay, Christianity basically is the view of Christ as Lord, and so I'm going to live according to the principles of the Word of God. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the Son has risen, not Jesus the Son, but the actual globe, of sun, burning gas, right? That the sun has risen not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. So he takes an illustration of the sun. When it rises, it's wonderful because not only can we see the sun, but we can also see everything else around us, okay? I came here this morning at about 645. It was pitch black in our parking lot. There was no sun. It was a little creepy, even in a church parking lot. But when the sun comes up, you see it, but you also see everything else by it. What he's saying is Christianity is like that. Not only do I see Christ, but because of my belief in Christ, I see everything else through that lens. That by Christ, by my belief in who he is, the Son of God, and by his word, I can believe and see everything else. 
So that's what our series is all about. Show us what the Bible says, get God's perspective to reframe our lives and our beliefs around that. So we're going to talk today about forgiveness, because this is kind of like the number one issue that I have talked with people about. Generally, we have maybe an understanding of what forgiveness should be, but we don't have a very good practice of it. All right, so I'm talking about forgiveness because believe it or not, a lot of the issues that I have heard people talk about, the root of that is an issue of forgiveness or unforgiveness. And by the way, forgiveness is essential to your life. It really is. Why? Because we're relational people. And so I'm going to hurt you. You're going to hurt me. We're going to hurt God, right? We're going to misunderstand God. And so we're going to have the sense that forgiveness is like a main currency of relational ability, right? We're going to hurt. We're going to be hurt. So forgiveness is essential. You're going to experience this. You already have experienced this. You've already been hurt. You've already been hurt by somebody else or hurt somebody else. We know this to be true. And when it comes to forgiveness, there's both that kind of vertical us to God, which is so important. We'll spend some time first talking about that aspect of forgiveness. But how many know it doesn't end here, okay? Because when it comes to our forgiveness from God, it also has horizontal results or implications, okay? So we're going to talk about these two-pronged issues of it. And the reason this is important is because I think it's interesting. In our culture, I've seen a rise in what's called anonymous confessions. There are websites you can go to to confess anonymously. Uh, why do we need that, right? Why do, we, why do I need a website or a social media site, or even podcasts you can listen to where you, you send to the pod, uh, podcast writers your confession, and they'll read it anonymously for you. And it's like, what is the point of that, right? Here's the point of it. When we have wronged somebody, we feel the tension. Why? Because we're relational. So we feel the tension. We feel like we need to do something. But rather than go to that person and actually confess and ask for their forgiveness, they now have a means to which to go online and anonymously, so therefore disassociate themselves really from the whole relational connection, but have this kind of, I guess, pressure valve release to confess and get it off their chest. But friends, is that really going to work? I don't think so. So some folks, believe it or not, they go digital with their confession. Others, they go social. What that means is, you've hurt me. I'm going to talk to 20 people about you and how bad you are. So some go digital, some go social, and boy, that's hard to clean up. I try to keep the circle small because if I talk to 500 people about how bad you were to me, and all of a sudden you and I are good, I got 499 people out here who still think you're bad. And how are you going to clean all that up? Oh, by the way, what I said about you, we're all good now. We never go back and play cleanup. And it's amazing to me how many people carry the offense for somebody else, and they aren't even carrying the offense anymore. But by God, I'm going to hold it for you. That's foolishness. We're supposed to go to the person, go to the source. Others, they go internal with it. So they bury their pain. They bury their remorse. They bury their shame and pretend it doesn't exist. Is that true? Does that work? Is that burying coping, uh, coping mechanism? There's a new word for you. Just take coping mechanism and throw them all together. Does that work? Well, not according to Karen Swartz, who is a doctor and the director of the Mood Disorders Adult Consultation Clinic at John Hopkins 
hospital. She writes this, There is an enormous physical burden to being hurt and disappointed. Chronic anger puts you into a fight-or-flight mode, which results in numerous changes in heart rate, blood pressure, and immune response. Those changes then increase the risk of depression, heart disease, diabetes, among other conditions. Now, I know some of us have a predisposition toward diabetes or blood pressure issues. I get that. It's genetic. It's hereditary. I get it. But some people are sick, and it started because of unforgiveness that went internal, of pain that was kept bottled up, and it's impacted their body. Some of you may be here today. You're chronically sick because you have been bitter and unforgiving, and that's war at your immune system. Friends, this is not just emotional. This is not just relational. This is physical. And why? Because I believe God has wired us to have harmony. And when we're out of harmony, our whole entire body says, hello, something is not right. And we got to fix this. And I've seen people's physical conditions change when they moved toward forgiveness. All of a sudden, they... Well, the blood pressure got better. All of a sudden, they weren't dealing with this chronic illness anymore. Their mood elevated. Forgiveness is critical because that's how God created us. But we can't talk about forgiveness without talking about sin. All right? Because this is where it all starts. I sin against God. I sin against you. And because of that, because of that sin back in Genesis that, that now is in the heart of all mankind, that nature is there We've got a problem. So let's talk really quickly about forgiveness means. In the Bible, sin, we'll talk about forgiveness in a minute, but in the Bible, sin basically means uh, to miss the mark. So the Greek and Hebrew words describe something that means to miss the mark or to stray from the path. So for you archer hunters out there, you get the idea when you've been trying to sight in your bow and you not hit the target, you adjust, right? That's generally what you do, so you hit the target. Same thing happens with hikers. Hopefully, you're staying on the path, but last summer alone, I saw countless pages for our search and rescue team to go rescue somebody who strayed off the path and either got lost or got hurt. That's the whole idea. Sin has the way of making us fall short or straying off the path. Either way, there are consequences. Others get hurt. We get hurt. The Bible talks about that. In fact, one of the most common verses we use about sin for the wage, uh, it says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So built into the definition of sin is an understanding that there is an ideal, that there is actual way, and we fall short of it, and we stray off of it. So there's an ideal. I know there's a world that wants to say, well, your ideal is your ideal. My ideal is my ideal. Let's just all get along. Fooey on that. There is an ideal that all of us feel relationally, and when we're violated, we're holding up that violation according to this ideal and said, you fell you fell short. We all have it. It's there. Same thing happens biblically. The ideal is called God's will, and God's will revealed to us in Scripture, and we fall short of that all the time, right? So that's what sin is, which requires forgiveness. So what is forgiveness? Let's break it down with some statements. First of all, forgiveness requires an awareness, confession, and repentance, all right, when it comes to this relationship, and certainly it, it applies to the relational aspects in our life as well, but let's talk about this one first. Psalm 32.5 says this, David the psalmist, and this is a great, 32 is a great psalm just for forgiveness. If you're in place of needing that, 
or wanting to extend it, go to Psalm 32. Then I acknowledged my sin. What is that? That is an awareness. Okay? I acknowledged it. I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. So forgiveness requires acknowledging it's there. You can't confess what you haven't acknowledged is there in the first place. So it starts there. In fact, ignoring it is a problem. Proverbs 28.13 says this, that whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them, okay, that's not only acknowledging, but now confessing and repenting, finds mercy. So we see that forgiveness has to take place through a certain way, acknowledging I did wrong, confessing that, and then repenting. So, uh, 1 John 1, 8 and 9. We love 1 John 1, 9, but let's look at what 8 says. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. There's quite a few people living in this world today, maybe in this room today, who deny you've done anything wrong. You have no problem. If we deny that we are without sin, we're lying to ourselves. The truth is not in us. But, verse 9, if we confess our sins, there's that final part. Acknowledge, I mean, not final, but next to final, confess our sins. He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And then finally, Acts 3. So Peter's preaching on that day of Pentecost. People are gathered because of the phenomenon happening in the upper room, and he preaches to that crowd, and they're ripped to the heart of what to do. And he says this, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. What's he tell them to do? Repent. Now, what does that mean? Repent really simply means to have a change of heart that results in a change of behavior. Okay? A change of heart, man, that was wrong. I repent of that, and that leads to a change of behavior. Admitting, confession, those are great. But friends, we have kind of a broken cycle if all we do is acknowledge sin, confess sin. Acknowledge sin, confess sin. Because many of you, you're still stuck in this cycle. And that sin is the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. Repentance means change of heart, change of behavior. And how we need that to live and operate in the forgiveness God has for us. Also, next, forgiveness means that God will never hold that sin against you again. Some of you have to hear this today. Forgiveness means that God will never hold that sin against you again. Some of you got to write that down. You got to say this to yourself tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Rather than just being Kelly's words, here's what the Bible says. Psalm 32, 1 to 2. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. Friends, look, some of you still feel like God's keeping track, and he's just waiting to catch you doing wrong again. He's not holding that sin against you. Psalm 130, verse 3, if you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, how could any, or who could stand? Isn't that true? If he kept a record of all of them, but we do that pretty good, don't we? We keep records. We know, we, we, we can tell you pretty quickly what you've done wrong for us. But who could stand, God, if you did that? But he goes on to say, but with you, so 
He doesn't keep records, okay? Because with you, there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you. Forgiveness. He's not keeping record. He's not waiting to catch you up. Oh, there's another, there's another mark on your good character record. No record of wrongs. He's not holding that sin against you. Which brings me to the next point, that forgiveness means that God chooses to no longer remember your sin. This is a big deal. It's not that he's forgetful. Oh, I forgot what you did. I mean, it's not like that. It's not like, you know, what we do sometimes when we get up to go do something and we get to the someplace and don't remember why we're even there. We get forgetful. It's not like he does that. He knows. He knows your sin. He knows what it costs to have that sin dealt with, the blood of his own son coming to this world, dying on a cross. He's not going to not know, okay? But here's all the difference in the world. He chooses not to remember. See, friends, this is where we got to learn this for ourselves as well. We're going to remember. Don't you wish you could forget? Don't you wish there was an ability to forget what somebody did to you? And to undo or unlearn or unsee or unfeel something that somebody did to you. We don't have that ability. And it's not like God didn't know. He knew the cost. He bore the cost. But he chose not to use it against you. He chose it not to remember it against you. Let's look at what it says. Let's go to um, Isaiah 43, 25. I even I, this is the prophet speaking for the Lord, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. He blots them out. You ever, you ever seen uh, documents from the, from, uh, that were confidential that were then made public? A lot of those will be blacked out, right? Where they take a marker and they mark certain stuff you can't see just so you can see the certain things you can see, right? What's beautiful about that is this is what it's like. This is what David's saying. Blot out my transgressions. Put a black line through them. They can't be held against me. They're, I'm, not account, they're not, I'm not accountable to them any longer. They are not remembered. No more. Forgiveness also means that you're not identified by your sin. Some of us think we are. Some people remind you what you did so you feel like you're identified by your sin. Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he arbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, thank God, or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Here's what happens, friends. In his forgiveness, that sin is no longer attached to you. He says, as far as the east is from the west, which basically means this will never be, this was never going to happen again, right? East to west. There's that, I mean, it's like never going to happen. That's how far that sin has been removed from you. You're not identified by that sin. I love this psalm from David, Psalm 25, verse 7. Some of you got to pray this because you're still living under the shame of your childhood decisions, your rebellious ways. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. 
according to your love, remember me. Ever thought of why he would put those together? It's like, oh, I know my child, I know my youth. I know those days, I know my past. So don't remember me according to the sins of my youth or my rebellious ways, but according to your love, remember me. You see what he's doing? He's going, I know that my sin is like me, but don't remember those. Just remember me, the person, which is what he's always interested in, is you. For you, Lord, are good. Forgiveness also means that God destroys the power of that sin to hold you hostage any longer. Some of you are still a captive to a past sin, and it's still holding you hostage. The good news is it doesn't. Forgiveness means that God destroys the death grip, the power that that sin has to hold you hostage. Let's look at it. Psalm 51. I mean, if there was ever a time in David's life where he thought maybe he went a little too far. Okay, David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. She was already spoken for. She was married to Uriah. She becomes pregnant. David hatches a plan to cover the pregnancy. It doesn't work. And so he has Uriah killed. So David, this man after God's own heart, commits adultery and murder. He's confronted by his sin. Psalm 51 is his prayer. You ever felt like you've gone a little too far? This is his prayer. You need to read this psalm in its entirety. We don't have time, but I want to lift the first part of it. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. There's that word again, blot. Wash away all my iniquity. And cleanse me from my sin. Why, does he, why is he starting that way? Here's why. What verse 3 says. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. And that's where some of you live. Every time you think you got a chance to maybe be in a better place, that sin is always before you, and it's right there, and it mocks you. And that's where David was. Now, the psalm, thankfully, doesn't end there. <laughs> it moves on. You need to read the whole thing. But the point is, we've all felt that before. We've all felt like the only thing I can see is my sin. And God, when you look at me, I'm sure that's all you see. It has a death grip on me. That was the remorse and the shame and the guilt that David felt. Paul answers that kind of response we all face with sin. I love it. He, in, in Romans chapter 6, verse 6, he says that we know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ. See, David didn't have the cross behind him to rejoice in that his sins were forgiven. He still had to look forward to that. But we do now. Paul reminds us that we were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its what? Power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. That sin of your past, that thing always before you, it really has no power or authority over you. You put it back in its place and you remind it, Jesus died for that sin. That I've been crucified with Christ and so therefore I'm no longer under the power of that sin. 
You have no hold on me. You have no authority on me. And now it moves from, we love this. We love the fact that God's forgiveness for us happens through acknowledging, confessing, repenting. We love the fact that it is, you know, he forgets. He chooses to not remember, not to hold those that doesn't have power over it. We love that part. But now we're going to move forgiveness to the application that should start here and then bleed out to here. And it's this. Forgiveness means that I must forgive others as God has forgiven me. It's so much easier to stay here and just be glad God forgave us. But being relational beings, he knows that what we've experienced here has got to be shared here. Look at what Jesus says. You can't get away from these words. These are the words of Jesus. Okay, this was in this great Sermon on the Mount when he was preaching about a whole bunch of kind of paradigm shift messages. You've heard that it was said in the Old Testament, but I tell you, it was just a remarkable way of internalizing the truth of God's word to all these Jewish hearers who thought that religion was something they did. It wasn't something they were as people, right? Jesus says, no, this is who you are as a people of God. And in that, he says this remarkable statement, verse 14, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, Your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. It's kind of a mysterious passage because it almost sounds like God chooses to and then doesn't, right? But you can see the direct interplay between this relationship and living in forgiveness this way. For me to walk fully in all the freedoms of God's forgiveness, I've got to be the one who is willing to work in that kind of way relationally here. And that blessings happen when this pathway is open in forgiveness, and so is this one. Okay? Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, and it gives us an ideal. Just as in Christ, God forgave you. In the same measure. At what point do you want God to say, well, I'm not going to forgive that? And where do you want that to happen on your life? None of us want that, right? We want complete, total forgiveness. But yet we go, I can't do that this way, God. I can't. You don't know what they did. I, I cannot operate that way. Friends, and you're putting yourselves in a very awkward place. And I think it's spiritually dangerous when we don't do that. But Kelly, doesn't that mean that forgiving them condones what they did? No. It doesn't. In fact, how many know that they still have to own that? Well, doesn't that mean that they don't have to repent if I just automatically forgive, that they can just keep doing what they're going to do and keep using this abuse cycle of forgiven, forgiven, forgiven? I don't know. I know that there, it calls for wisdom because there are some times that maybe when your child or your teenager or your spouse has hurt you and you've been quick to move toward reconciliation, they haven't gone through the steps of acknowledging, confessing, and repenting. And sometimes we can preempt what God needs to do in their life to bring restitution and reconciliation. So it calls for wisdom. But there are also times where because of your extension of grace and mercy and forgiveness, they have been repentant and responded through that. So it just really calls for God's wisdom. 
I mean, think of the words of Jesus. What did he say when he was hanging on the cross? Father, forgive them. It wasn't because they were all his feet saying, oh, Jesus, we are so sorry for what we did to you. They were calling him names. They were making fun of him. And in that moment, he says, forgive. They really don't know what they're doing. That's hard for us to embody in our lives relationally, but that's what we're called to. And finally, God's forgiveness of sin is limitless and calls us to forgive without limits. There's this great little story, Matthew 18. Jesus had been talking about what we should do when there's when we have, you know, somebody offend us, especially within the body of Christ, you know, go to that person just individually, not talk about them to 500 people, right? You go directly to the source. You try to seek reconciliation. If it doesn't happen, you bring some friends with you, the witnesses to try to persuade. And if that doesn't happen, you bring them before the church, right? Uh, we don't see this happen very often. Usually we all opt for the other options. Um, but he shows them how. And then Peter's like thinking about this. So he goes to Jesus and asks this question, um, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? How many want to know a number, right? That's where Peter was. Okay, you've been talking about forgiveness, but like how many times is appropriate before I just say no more for you? So he offers a number to Jesus. He says, ah, maybe seven times. And Peter thought he was being generous. And here's why. Because in rabbinic teaching, you forgive somebody three times, and if they do it a fourth time, you no longer have to forgive them. That was rabbinic code. That was what the Jewish population did. And so when Peter was moved by Jesus was talking about forgiveness, and he was thinking like, well, maybe I'll be generous, so I'll take that three plus three, add one for good measure, and say seven times? Is that how many times I should forgive? And, and I can just imagine what Jesus is thinking looking at Peter. It's like, you're not getting any of this, are you? Because Jesus was totally tweaking with their worldview. He was totally messing it up. They had a view. Three times, no more for you. But what's he doing? He's reframing. So he tells Peter, I, I don't say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Or in some translations, 77 times. So you can see Peter you know, doing the math. Okay, hang on. I'm a fisherman, so give me a minute here, Jesus. You're saying seven times 70. So he's picturing fish. Okay, so 490? Now, he doesn't have this conversation with Jesus because Jesus doesn't give him the time. He just tells him a story. But the point was, Peter, we're not going to keep track. That's the point. Some say 70 times 7 is the number of perfection, which means you never stop forgiving. And this is still baffling Peter, so he tells him this story. Well, it's in... It's in Matthew 18. I encourage you to read it. It's on the screen for you to note down the passage location. But he tells a story of a king. And the king brings before him a man who owes him a large sum of money. It's one of his servants. And the servant somehow has come into a place where he owes the king what would be the equivalent, some say, of $20 million. Could even be more, depending on you know, the, the way you look at how much that was. A large sum of money. And he comes before the king. And that's a pretty big amount. And he begs the king, I can't repay, I'll, I'll figure out a way to do it, but don't put me into prison, don't take my family away from me, I'll find a way to make it. He, this is my version of the story, but you get the idea. And the king pardons the $20 million debt. Now we need to just stop there in the story and think through what Jesus was saying. 
Here's a king who was rightfully owed 20 million. Who did it cost that day to forgive that servant? It didn't cost the servant anything. The king absorbed the cost. What does that mean, friends? That means when somebody has sinned us, somebody's going to pay. But in forgiveness, we're choosing to absorb. We're choosing to not get even. We're choosing to not hold that grudge. It's a cost. It's not easy, is it? It's a hard cost. You know, Kelly, you mean I got to release that and all the interest? Yeah. But that's not fair. Last time I checked, I served a Savior who went to a very unfair cross to die in my very unfair place. Nothing of the way that Jesus views forgiveness or life is fair. It's just not. It doesn't make sense. That's why it's like so hard for us to do. Well, the story goes on. The king forgives him. He leaves the king's presence. He's out. He finds a friend who owes him 20 bucks. Okay, that's the equivalent. 20 million, 20 bucks. He throttles his friend, chokes him, demands payment. The friend does, he says the exact same words that he said to the king, begging for mercy. And this man has nothing to do with it. Has his friend thrown into prison until the debt could be paid. Servants rat out that guy and say, oh, king, you will not believe what the guy just did that you forgave $20 million. He threw a friend into prison over $20. The king hears it. He's enraged. He has the man thrown into prison until his debt can be paid off. Interesting story, parable of Jesus, but how does he end it? Because when Jesus tells a story, it's not just, hey, it's story time with Jesus. <laughs> There's a reason. And this is what he says. As he closes his parable, he says, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. There's a lot of tension in those kind of verses that are really hard for us to understand if we only look at God through the lens of grace and mercy. It's really hard to understand that. But he is so, he is so determined that this forgiveness moves into this field of forgiveness that he intertwines the two. And I don't have a clear, real clear answer on how exactly that works. I'm not God. But all I can say is you can't get away from the fact that those are intertwined. And some of you as followers of Jesus, you're living in that tension of experiencing this forgiveness but not giving it out here. And truth be told, it's not right. And what you're feeling is not right. There's still an angst in you. And I believe there's a certain degree at which you place yourself in a very dangerous position by holding on to unforgiveness and continuing, even though God has forgiven you so freely and so purely, that you hang on to that. And it affects you. So what do we do with that? Remember? We had a frame on how we dealt with forgiveness, and maybe it was just bury it, put it under the rug. We don't deal with it. In our family, we don't deal with that. We just, we just shut it up. Well, how's that worked over the years? 
when you have family members that won't talk to each other? How well is that serving you? How well is that frame working? For others, you know God's forgiveness, but you've not been willing to extend it to somebody who's offended you. How well is that frame working for you? All I can say is, friends, I'm going to try to be obedient to what God's word shows me about forgiveness. And as freely as I have been forgiven, I should forgive. God's forgiveness for me is limitless. Therefore, I need to be willing to forgive without limits and without strings attached. Well, if you, then I will. No. And this is not an easy message, but this is a frame that so often is distorted. When we lay it aside God's truth, we go, wow, thanks God, that kind of hurts. So forgiveness, it requires that awareness, that confession, that repentance. It means that God will never hold that sin against you. We love this stuff. It means that God chooses to no longer remember your sin. It means that you are not identified by your sin, and God destroys the power that that sin has to hold you hostage. Praise God for that. But then you're holding other people hostage, and you're remembering other people's sins, and you're holding it against them, and you're keeping a record of wrongs rather than recognizing that forgiveness means I must forgive others as he's forgiven me. And that his love and his forgiveness for me is limitless. So I want you to close your eyes and bow your heads. Because we can't just hear a message like this and, and not take time to maybe have our frame reframed. So I'm going to start here. If you're here today and you're saying, Kelly, I just know I'm not in the right place with God. And I need to be forgiven. I've been kind of playing around. I've been walking that line, but I've not been living in repentance. Maybe you're good at admitting you're sinful, you're broken. Maybe you're good even at confessing that, but you've not been good at repenting. Which is that change of heart, which leads to a change of behavior. That's, that's what the Lord would desire. And if you're here and say, Kelly, today, I just know I need that. With the heads bowed and eyes closed, just raise a hand and say, I think I, I believe that's me, Kelly. Pray with me today. Raise a hand if that's you. Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you in the back. Anybody else? Yes, I see that. So, Lord, we do what your word says right now. We thank you for the, the, the demonstration of David, who said, I'm not going to bottle this up, but I'm going to confess it. And thank you that what John records for us, who was the close disciple to you, who he said, if we confess our sins, that you are faithful and just to forgive us. So we want to start there. We want to confess that we are sinful, that we are caught in a trap of sin. But thank you, Jesus, that you broke that power of sin at the cross, that you died for me, that I could not only have relationship with God, but I can have victory over sin, which means not only can I acknowledge and confess, but I can also repent because that sin has no hold over me any longer. So I repent today. I turn my life from my own self-serving ways to you. So thank you for forgiving me today. Thank you for your forgiveness. But there are others in the room today that know that that forgiveness between you and God is set, but you have not been exercising that relationally. And you're here today and saying, Kelly, this is a hard message because I know there's some people I have to forgive. And I want God's help to do that today.
Just raise a hand if that's you. I have people that I've got to forgive. Thank you. Anybody else? Lots of hands going up. You're not alone in the room. So, Lord, you know what's going on. You know what was done. And you're not excusing what was done. That's never the point of forgiveness. But you are about reconciliation relationally. So it's got to start with my willingness to release, to absorb the cost of what it means to forgive, because that is hard. That means I'm not going to get even. I'm not going to keep nursing that grudge, which somehow makes me feel good. But I'm going to release it. And let your love and forgiveness wash over me that I can then extend that. And I ask for your wisdom to do that right. Perhaps, Lord, there needs to be a conversation that I extend that forgiveness to somebody. And I can't determine how to respond to that no more than you can determine how your people will respond to your extension of forgiveness. But I want to be obedient to extend. So give me the courage and the grace that only comes from you to do that. Knowing that in that release, I will also feel that refreshing. And even now in this moment, I whisper my forgiveness to that person. Thank you, Lord. And there are others in the room, you know you've hurt somebody and you need to seek forgiveness. Today's the day to do that. To step into that and go say, own up to it. Acknowledge that you were wrong. Confess. Repent. Maybe that's to your spouse, your kids, your family, close friend. I don't know. Maybe that person's not here even to confess to any longer. Or maybe that person who so hurt you is not alive today to reconcile with. Then you just bring that to the Lord today. He knows. So, Lord, I pray for those who need to set some things right that they have offended, they have hurt others. And they've already sought your forgiveness. And thank God for that, that you can forgive us. But you desire for that also to be done relationally, to bring harmony back out here because it is so intertwined. So thank you for your forgiveness. But now help us to seek the forgiveness of the one we've offended. That's going to require humility. But I pray they would have that today. To have that important conversation. Never knowing what kind of release can happen when they admit they were wrong and seek forgiveness. So thank you, Lord. Thank you that we can reframe our mindset about forgiveness. It's so easy to drift back into the American way that writes people off, that, that is just done, that says it's okay to hold grudges so easy to drift back that way. So help us to stay within the frame of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.